0: You're listening to Semper Reform on the Radio, where the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is applied to all of life. There are many people who do not want to hear the truth because it will shake up the false hope they have that they're going into heaven when indeed they are not. Christ is our king, scripture is our law, scripture and the laws of our country now collide head on. Now just to make it clear, we don't bow down to Caesar. So what does Paul do when he gets his big shot at the Areopagus? Watch him. Now not only has Paul not compromise in order to get here but once he's here he says your worldview is wrong your philosophy is wrong it's not just wrong it's an affront to god you ought to know better you're in sin
1: but the good news is god has extended to you an opportunity to repent
0: All right, welcome to Semper Reformanda Radio. My name is Tim, and I'm going to be your host for today. Uh, As always, we want to remind everybody that we are part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. And uh, with that comes a number of other podcasts that you can check out. You have Conversations from the Porch uh, with the New Covenant Theology crew. Although there's some competition in that area because they've recently added another podcast... Uh, that their New Covenant th- Theology as well, and they are Shine as lights. So check those guys out. Um, you also have Matt Slick with Slick Answers, and you have the original The Bible Thumping Wingnut Crew. And uh, so, yeah, I, I would encourage everybody to check those other podcasts out. Today, we have a special guest with us, somebody who I consider a uh, – A huge blessing to uh, my own walk with the Lord and uh, a huge blessing to the church at large. Today we have with us Timothy Kaufman. Now we've done a couple of other episodes with Timothy Kaufman. Uh, If you want to check those episodes out, they're in reference to our critique of Tim Keller. But Timothy Kaufman is an expert in Roman Catholicism, and that's really what we want to talk to him about today. Today. He's written uh, two books on Roman Catholicism. One is called, uh, titled Gra- this, uh, Graven Bread, and the other one is titled Quite Contrary. And today we're going to be talking about the Roman Catholic Mass. So, uh, also, uh, Brother Kaufman does a blog, and a lot of the stuff that you're going to hear today, you can find on Brother Kaufman's blog. The blog is titled Out of His Mouth, but... It's it's kind of interesting because when you check out this blog, um, it's the the URL is whitehorseblog.com, and uh, brother Tim, let me let me give you a, an opportunity to say hello, and then I, I just wanted to ask you, do you ever does anybody ever get your blog confused with the White Horse Inn? Have have you ever had that? Uh, uh,
1: no, I haven't. I haven't had a lot of that. I've I've been accused of co-opting their name. Uh, in order to to add some sort of veneer of of uh, credibility to my <laughs> my blogging, but that was never the intention. In fact, uh, I I started a company called White Horse Publications years before I ever even heard about White Horse Inn, and the fact is that they were named after a, a pub in uh, in England, and I basically took this uh, the name of White Horse from Revelation, where the Lord rides in on a white horse, but most importantly, he bears a sword that comes out of his mouth that is the Word of God, and uh, it's by the Word of God that ultimately the, the, all error will be defeated. And so that was the inspiration for White Horse Blog. But, um, but yeah, as you mentioned, the, uh, the White Horse Blog is the URL. There is an eight-week series that we'll be addressing today, and that series is called Their Praise Was Their Sacrifice – and folks that want to get more information on the things we'll be talking about today can go to Whitehorse Blog and search for that series called Their Praise Was Their Sacrifice.
0: Right, and if you if you type in Out of His Mouth in uh, Google, your, your site is the first one that comes up, and you can just click on Timothy Kaufman, and it'll lead you to that. I think it's funny because I, I sent somebody your... I I sent them the URL and I sent them an article and they responded with, "Oh, I love the guys from White Horse Inn." <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "Not the same, but okay." Uh, I I don't really know much about that those guys, but um, so, uh, brother Tim, I, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that we're going to be talking about Roman Catholicism because I think that it's a it's a I think it's a bigger issue than most people. Recognize And in light of the fact that we are now at the 500-year mark of the Protestant Reformation, I, I really would like to see more Protestants focus on trying to evangelize and reach Roman Catholics. Uh, we see guys like uh, in ministry go and talk to Mormons. We see guys go and talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, and those are hot issues. Uh, another one would be Islam. But, by and large, it seems like a lot of what we hear evangelicals, uh, what we hear from evangelicals is that Roman Catholics are uh, saved, that they're uh, brothers, that that it's a denominational issue. And I recently did a podcast uh, addressing the topic whether or not Roman Catholics are saved. And I answered the question by saying Roman Catholics are not saved. And every single time I, I have a conversation about this or I talk about this, I always hear the same criticisms. People think that I'm saying that Roman Catholics can't be saved or that there aren't people who are attending Roman Catholic churches who are saved. Now, I would say that, yeah, I, I believe that there are people in the Roman Catholic church who are attending the church who who possibly are saved, uh, newly converted who are saved. But if that's the case, then I would say that they need to come out of the Roman Catholic Church. They need to stop identifying as Roman Catholics. So I'm not making uh, any any type of sweeping generalization. What I'm saying is that by definition, if you are a Roman Catholic, then you are not a Christian. And, and as I said before, and in, and in, uh, the previous episode where I critiqued Roman Catholicism it's It's important and significant to remember that Luther was kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church for believing the very thing that saved him, for believing the gospel and uh, the 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 Church of Rome anathematized the gospel, and the Church of Rome said basically if if you believe this, the very thing that makes you a Christian, the very thing that that saves you, if you believe this, then you are not Roman Catholic. So what we have is that a person can either be a Roman Catholic and reject the gospel or if they accept the gospel then by definition they're not Roman Catholic. And today what I wanted to tackle was the Roman Catholic mass because we do hear people say all the time, well I know somebody who's a Roman Catholic and they're saved. And we find out through conversation that they are that these people are attending Roman Catholic churches, that they're going to the mass, and that's a big deal here in El Paso, Texas, where I live, because it's predominantly Roman Catholic. Every single time, uh, just about every single time, I, I can't say that because I've been to some Protestant funerals, but every uh, for the most part, when people in El Paso here pass away, we always have a mass, and because there's some family obligation to attend the funeral services, I find myself going to Roman Catholic masses all the time. As a matter of fact, uh, I have a large Roman Catholic family and my family is predominantly, uh, they're, they're, they're old school Roman Catholic. And every time uh, somebody passes away in the family, we, we have a, a rosary, we have a mass for them. And, and, so for me, it's a, it's a pretty big deal. I, I would like to see more Protestants being Protestant and protest the church once again. So today we're going we're gonna to be talking about the Roman Catholic Mass. Uh, I brought in Tim Kaufman, who is an expert in this area. He's, I, I would say he's an expert in, in probably most, if not all, of Roman Catholic issues because he is a convert from uh, Roman Catholicism. So, Brother Tim, with that, I'd like to just give you the floor and allow you to tell us what the Mass is, and, and we can just go ahead and start talking about that.
1: Okay, well, thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm glad to to be part of it. I do love listening to the podcast, and it's a, really a privilege to be included on it. Um, my uh, My objective in writing the series, Their Praise Was Their Sacrifice, was to deal with a claim of Roman Catholicism that ever since the days of the apostles, the church has offered the Lord's Supper as the true sacrifice of the new covenant, the sacrifice of the church. And I think that it's probably best for us to simply start with what Roman Catholicism says about the mass. So I'm going to quote from the 1996 Catechism of the Catholic Church. And this is what the sacrifice of the mass is. And I I want to emphasize that you probably hear about it as the Mass, or you might have a Mass that is said for somebody, or there's a Mass during a wedding, or there's a Mass during a funeral. Uh, But that's just shorthand for the sacrifice of the Mass. So let's see what the Roman Catholic Church says about the Mass. And this is quoting from paragraph 1324 of the Catechism. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. For in the Blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the church, namely Christ himself, our Passover, or our Pasch is what it says. So for starters, the Eucharist is the most important thing in Roman Catholicism. And part of why it's the most important thing in Roman Catholicism is that it in it is contained the whole spiritual good of the church, which is Christ himself. And that goes back to the matter of transubstantiation, which is the teaching that when the priest invokes the Holy Spirit at the mass and says, this is my body, according from Christ in the gospels, that at that moment the bread and the wine cease to be bread and wine, but actually become Christ's body and blood. Now that's important Because when we talk about the mass as a sacrifice, Roman Catholicism teaches that as soon as they have transubstantiated the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ, Jesus' body and blood and his soul and his divinity divinity as well are at that point offered to God as a sacrifice for our sins. And this is what they say in... um, Paragraph 1323, at the Last Supper, on the night he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood. Paragraph 1330, it is called the Holy Sacrifice because it makes present one sacrifice of Christ, the Savior, and includes the church's offering. Now, I want to highlight that last phrase there, it includes the church's offering. They basically have united two different concepts. One is the collection of for the saints something that was done frequently in the in the early church and was recommended to us in the new testament which is to collect our worldly goods and gather them so that they can be distrib- distributed to meet the needs of the saints who were hungry or were thirsty and needed <clears throat> provisions and so roman catholicism immediately includes the church's offering of providing for the saints along with the sacrifice of the body and blood of Christ. And that's what they would, that's what they say the Eucharistic sacrifice is. And and this is, this next paragraph is uh, paragraph um, uh, 3,333. This one's very, very important. It says at the heart of the Eucharistic celebration are the bread and wine that by the words of Christ and the invocation of the Holy Spirit become Christ's body and blood. I'm sorry, that's, that's paragraph 1333, not 3,333. So, So the reason I want to highlight that, and this is going to be very important later on in our conversation, is that it's not until the Holy Spirit has been invoked that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, according to Roman Catholicism. And that means that the sacrifice of the Mass does not occur until the Holy Spirit has been invoked. Otherwise, they would simply be sacrificing bread to God, and Roman Catholics deny that in the sacrifice of the mass, they're just sacrificing bread and wine. They believe they're literally sacrificing Christ's body and blood and presenting to the Father again for our sins. So does so that make sense?
0: It, it does. And let me let me just ask a question then. And I think we're going to get into this a little bit later. But so when when you go to a Catholic church, okay, if 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 there are if if you're saying that there's somebody that you know who's who's truly saved and that they are attending a catholic church there's a there's a big problem they need to either leave or you need to come to terms with the fact that m- you, maybe they're not saved and you need to persevere in, in evangelizing that person because what i hear you saying and tell me if if, if this is right but they're ultimately and and the mass they're they're rejecting the idea that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was sufficient for sins. It sounds like they're 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 re sacrificing him every Sunday, and you said for the for for sins. So
1: it Well well on, on that point I want to make sure we emphasize their words is that the sacrifice of the Mass makes present the one sacrifice of Christ the Saviour. Now, now, this is this is important because if you say they're re-sacrificing Christ, they'll deny that and say, no, 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 Christ is not sacrificed over and over and over again. He sacrificed once, but the sacrifice of the mass makes present that one offering, and it's by that representation of the offering that sins are continually paid for and covered. And that it's it's important because if, if we go into this discussion on the Mass and say they're sacrificing Christ over and over again, or they're re-sacrificing Christ, they'll immediately deny that. Their language is they're making present the one sacrifice of Christ. But I would say functionally it has the same effect as if Christ was being re-sacrificed because that means that you could not simply trust in the sacrifice that he had made on that day at Calv- uh, Calvary that you had to instead trust in the priest and the church to continually present it to God on your behalf for your sins. And that moves your trust from Christ and his work at the cross and on to the church and the priest for them to actually present that for you. Now, they'll say that the priest is sacrificing this in the person of Christ. So they, you know, they would say, oh, no, no, it's not the priest offering it. It's Christ representing it to the father. And I will just go back to the one single offering that Christ made that he did it in the, in the prophecy of the old Testament that was that Jesus, that God would cover our sins in a single day. And he did that at the cross. There is no need for this to be continually represented. Jesus ascended to his father's side and sat down, which means he was finished offering he does not continually offer that sacrifice to the father it was offered once he ascended the, the the sacrifice was accepted by god he sat down at his father's right hand and he was done and he does and that's, not continually represent that sacrifice to his father
0: right and that's also what's meant when he he cried out from the cross it is finished right that's
1: right that's yeah. right he did not set up an order of priests that continually represent or make present his offering in the church through the sacrifice of the mass Uh, but I think that what we want to get into today is more about why they think it's a sacrifice and why Protestants have historically rejected that.
0: Right. Well, let's, uh, let's get into that. Um, You were going to compare their, uh, their catechism with the Westminster confession of faith. Uh, Let let me remind everybody that that Tim Kaufman is a Presbyterian and uh, you're, going to compare it to the Westminster Confession of Faith but not as the, the Westminster Confession of Faith I know that you don't hold it as a as a standard uh equal to scripture we are going to get into scripture I feel silly having to explain that but we have a lot of people who just you quote the 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 Westminster Confession of Faith and they think that you're you're using that as a standard that's equal to the Bible uh that's not what's happening here um I, I also subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, not not everything. I, I'm still working through a lot of that. As a matter of fact, uh, Tim, brother Tim, you need to you need to help me out with the gifts of the Spirit. But that's a that's a side note <laughs> uh, for for later private conversations. Uh, I'm currently dealing with uh, whether or not the gifts are valid for today. I, I come from a different background, and uh, but anyways, I'm, I'm digressing. So go ahead and um, uh, continue. I'll, I'll give you the platform.
1: okay, so so where where we want to go today is uh, let's we've read what Roman Catholicism says the mass is. The reformers rejected the mass, and uh, I want to quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith just as an example to show this is what the opinion of you know, a typical Protestant position would be. Uh, is in this sacrament, that is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for the remission of sins of the quick or the dead, but only a commemoration of that one offering up of himself, by himself, upon the cross, once for all, and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same, so that the popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominably injurious to Christ's one only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of his elect. And that's chapter 29, paragraph 2 of the Westminster Confession. Now, the significance is that we're both basing our positions on the Scripture and Roman Catholicism on top of that is basing their position on the teachings of the early Church. And on that basis, Roman Catholics will throw down what I call or they have called the sacrifice challenge. They throw down the gauntlet and say, Listen, you guys think that it's not really a sacrifice, but read the early church fathers, and it turns out that they thought it was a sacrifice. In fact, they thought it was the fulfillment of a prophecy in Malachi chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. And when they throw down the sacrifice challenge, we go down the path of looking at the early church fathers. And we find out that the early church talked an awful lot about sacrifice. And in fact, they talked an awful lot about Malachi 1, verses 10 to 11. And so so I want to read Malachi 1, verses 10 to 11. And then I want to get into what Catholics think the sacrifice challenge is and why they think the Roman Catholic sacrifice of the mass can be found in the early church. But before we go much further, I simply want to say that the Mass sacrifice as Roman Catholics know it today is a novelty of the late 4th century. And until then, the Mass was not practiced, not as the sacrifice that Roman Catholics call it, that is the sacrifice of Christ's body and blood. And I want to make sure we say that up front because I want to equip your listeners with the response that they should be prepared to say any time a Roman Catholic comes to them and says, You have to be like us and offer the sacrifice of the mass and your listeners need to respond by saying that no, I remain a member of the one holy apostolic church established by Christ and I refuse to leave that apostolic religion for your late fourth century novelty. And and it's important that they be able to say that because Roman Catholics are always saying to Protestants, oh, you have to join the one holy apostolic faith and leave your 16th century novelty. Well, the fact is that what we do today in the Lord's Supper is what the early church did, and the mass sacrifice, as Roman Catholics do, is a late 4th century novelty. And that's where we're going today, and that's why we're going to examine the early church fathers, but I just want to let people know up front that's exactly where we're headed. So let's read Malachi 1, verses 10 to 11. It says, Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on my altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even into the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place, incense shall be offered unto my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Okay, so there's a prophecy from Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, saying that God is rejecting the sacrifices of the Jews, but the sacrifices of the heathen will be accepted and Roman Catholicism says the prophecy of Malachi 1 10 to 11 is fulfilled in the sacrifice of the mass because what other sacrifice do we offer except the sacrifice of the mass that must be the one that Malachi had envisioned and therefore Roman Catholics are the only ones that truly fulfill the Malachi prophecy. So. When we start looking into the nature of that prophecy, even Protestants, like, and I'm going to quote from J. And D. Kelly from his book, Early Christian Doctrines. He said that the Eucharist was regarded as the distinctively Christian sacrifice from the closing decade of the first century, if not earlier. Malachi's prediction, that is Malachi 1, verses 10 to 11, was early seized upon as a prophecy of the Eucharist and the words of institution, do this must have been charged with sacrificial overtones for second century years. Okay, so now now we're in a situation where it's not just us against them, it's us and them against us. Because we even have Protestants saying, you know, you have to admit that the Eucharist was considered a sacrifice, even in the early church, and we're left explaining how on earth did Jesus' religion that he established off its rails in the first century and I don't think that we really have to explain that at all what Roman Catholics have to explain is why they are imposing a late fourth century novelty on the early church and the way they do it I'm going to quote from the Dewey Catechism and this is from uh, 1649 and uh this is this is one of the earlier uh, arguments i i could find from roman catholicism on malachi 1:11 in the Dewey catechism it says the question is is the blessed eucharist a sacrifice and the answer is given as as this it is a clean oblation which the prophet malachi chapter 1 verse 11 foretold all the holy popes and fathers and councils of the primitive ages teach that the mass is the self-same sacrifice of the bread and wine that had been instituted by our Savior. So, so here you go. This is the Roman Catholic argument that this has been taught. The mass sacrifice of Jesus' body and blood offered to the Father to represent or make present Christ's one sacrifice on the cross has been taught since the earliest days of the church and it's time for Protestants to repent of their rebellion and come back to the holy apostolic religion, which is Roman Catholicism. And my response is simple. Roman Catholicism needs to repent of its fourth century novelty and come back to the holy apostolic church. And and, and I, want to, I want to say that up front because what they're claiming as an apostolic right did not even come about until the end of the fourth century. But before we go much further, Let's first talk about what the scriptures say about sacrifices in the new covenant. And the reason I want to do this is because when we first hear about the sacrifice of the mass, the the, the, Christians, the ear of the Christian has been so tuned to the understanding of the finality of sacrifices, the end of sacrifices because of what Christ did on the cross, that they just cannot... Uh, They cannot tolerate the hearing of another sacrifice that continues, and yet it's important for us to explore the New Testament to find out what the apostles taught us about the continuation of sacrifices, because if we don't familiarize ourselves with what the New Testament teaches about continued sacrifices, we will lose the battle before we even start with Roman Catholics because they'll simply start pointing out all these scripture passages. Look at all these sacrifices that keep going. So let's take a minute and just go through all the sacrifices that the New Testament prescribes and in fact insists must go on. And then we'll dive into the early church.
0: Well, so let me, let me ask a clarifying question for our listeners, because uh, what you're saying then is that the Roman Catholic position uh, claims to be the fulfillment of Malachi. And then the Christian, the the Bible believing Christian, would say, "No, there are no more sacrifices for today. Uh, we Christ's uh, sacrifice on the cross was uh, once for all, and um, the, it, we we don't make sacrifices. There's nothing left to be sacrificed today." And you're saying, "You," but you were saying that Protestants do in fact make sacrifices to God today.
1: Yes. Yes. In fact, we do. Okay. Uh, in fact, in fact, that we're commanded to by the apostles. And this is why it's so important for us to understand what the Bible trained Christian really means is that there are more, no more sacrifices for okay. sin.
0: So let me make this appeal. <laughs> when, when I was on the phone with Brother Kaufman, uh, Brother Tim earlier this week, he threw me for a loop. He, he He said that. And it's it's not a it's not something that I've considered before. And I kind of sat back and I thought, huh, that sounds, that sounds interesting. Okay, keep talking. So to our listeners, don't, don't click out now. Don't click out <laughs> yet, okay? Uh, Brother Kaufman Cough- right, right. is sound. He's going to explain what he means by that. He's, uh, he's not being heretical. He does believe that the sacrifice of Christ is uh, sufficient. Uh, and so I- I'll let you explain what you're talking about. You're, you're going to explain it a lot better than I can.
1: Yeah, and, and you know what? I think it's very, very important and appropriate for you to throw that caveat in there. So don't tune out. We have been so well trained that the sacrifice for sins is over that we forget that there are other kinds of sacrifices that we are continue to offer. And, and I want to just go through them. I'm going to actually start with Psalms 51 because it's actually uh, this something that I think everybody is going to, uh, all your listeners will embrace. Of course, they'll embrace all of them because they're all from the New Testament, but and they're all from the Scriptures. But Psalms 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, thou wilt not despise. So no one would deny that this one sacrifice that is appropriate before God is a broken spirit. You don't go to God with a broken spirit and say, I hope this atones for my error. You go with a broken spirit and cast yourself upon the mercy of God, and that's a that's a sacrifice of worship before the Lord. But let's get into Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Is Paul prescribing some kind of sacrifice? Yes, he absolutely is. Uh, what is that sacrifice? It's a, it's a sacrifice of worship. We Instead of being transformed by the world, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. That is change in us as uh, it glorifies God and it's a witness to the world that we're a different people and that's a that's a spiritual sacrifice a living sacrifice let's look at Philippians four eighteen, and this is when Paul had received the generous offerings of the uh, Philippians they'd sent some food to him and some other necessities and he said but I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, and well-pleasing to God. That one is just so important because when we take care of our neighbors, when we take care of each other, when we provide for each other's needs, Paul says that's a well-pleasing, acceptable sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And and to emphasize that, I want to go to 2 Corinthians 9, verses 10 to 12. And Paul doesn't specifically call this a sacrifice here, but he talks about the bread of thanksgiving, the bread of thanksgiving that is administered to supply the needs of the saints. This is 2 Corinthians 9, verses 10 to 12. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth us through thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplieth the wants of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. So one of the ways that we show our gratitude to God for his abundant provisions is to give the excess to those who have need. And that's considered a sacrifice that is pleasing and acceptable to God. Not to pay for sins. It's a sacrifice of gratitude and thanksgiving for all the things that were given to us. Let's go to 1 Peter 2, 5. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. What kind of sacrifices are those? Caring for each other? Praising God, thanking him for all he has done for us, presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God by the transforming of our minds. Uh, let's go to Hebrews 13:15. By him, therefore, let us offer up the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And then I'm going to wrap up on Revelation 5.8 because it is appealed to so frequently by the early church. And this, uh, it says, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So remember, Malachi prophesied that the Gentiles would offer well-pleasing, acceptable sacrifices to God, oblations and incense. And guess what the early church thought that the oblations and incense were? Worship, praise, caring for each other. Our prayer is our incense. The fruit of our lips is the sacrifice we offer. All of these sacrifices are called out in the New Testament as things, that, as sacrifices that we have been called together as a holy house to offer. And we no longer have to offer sacrifices for sin Because Christ has satisfied that, and we're freed up to thank God with our lips. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. That's a sacrifice of praise. Thank you, Lord, for this food that you provided for my table to feed my family. Sacrifice of gratitude. Thank you, Lord, for providing so much that it overflows, and I can give to my neighbors who are in need. Sacrifice of praise. We have been built together as a holy house to offer sacrifices as a new priesthood, And it has nothing to do with representing Christ's death on the cross to the Father, but rather with abundantly thanking him for the provisions he's given to us and with the fruit of our lips offering praise to his name. And the reason this is so important, before we ever dive into the early church, we need to understand what sacrifices are prescribed in the New Testament because when we start reading the early church, guess what they do? They appeal to those exact verses to say, these are the sacrifices that we offer now. We no longer offer the sacrifices of the Jews. Does that make sense?
0: It does. And when you say that the early church appealed uh, to these to these verses, you are the the early church. You were saying is what before 380 D, 382 AD.
1: Yeah. Well, the early church for the first 300 years uh, okay. after the apostolic era. Yeah. So those first three centuries from the apostles. And it's not just that they appeal to these verses, but they appeal to these verses as the fulfillment of Malachi 1. You know, they they say, look at what Malachi said, and and, and look how we fulfill it. And and let me just give you—I'm just going to give you a few examples. It's just absolutely stunning to read all they had to say about sacrifice in the early church. And it turns out they're appealing to these verses in the New Testament. This is the sacrifice we offer now. And in particular, I want I want your listeners to. Do, there's a couple in here that talk about because God is incorporeal, that is, the Father does not have a body. It is appropriate that we offer incorporeal sacrifices to Him. Uh, the God we worship is invisible, and therefore our sacrifices should be invisible. Uh, Those are not the kinds of things you would say if you believed that Jesus had instituted the visible sacrifice of the Mass. And yet this is how the early church talked. So let's talk about Justin Martyr, who died in 165 AD. This is from his first Apology, chapter 13. Worshiping as we do the maker of this universe and declaring as we have been taught that he has no need of streams of blood and libations and incense whom we praise to the utmost of our power by the exercise of prayer and thanksgiving for all things wherewith we are supplied as we have been taught that the only honor that is worthy of him is not to consume by fire what he has brought into being for our sustenance, but to use it for ourselves and those who need notice that he has invoked Malachi 1 10 that is consuming a sacrifice by fire and Philippians 4 18 that is to use the abundance of God's creation for those who are in need of it. That's what Paul was referring to in Philippians 4.18 about a sacrifice that is well-pleasing to God. Irenaeus, who died in 202 AD, this is from his work against heresies, book 4, chapter 17, paragraph 6. He says, well, on both these grounds and in every place incense is offered to my name and a pure sacrifice. Now John, in the apocalypse, declares that the incense is the prayers of the saints. Notice that he's connected Malachi 1:11 with Revelation 8:3, just like we talked about earlier. Irenaeus again in uh, Book 4 of Against Heresies, Chapter 18, Paragraph 4. Inasmuch then as the church offers with single-mindedness, her gift is justly reckoned as a pure sacrifice with God, as Paul also says to the Philippians, "I am full." Having received from Epaphroditus the things that were sent from you, the odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, pleasing to God. For it behooves us to make an oblation to God, and in all things to be found grateful to God our Maker in a pure mind and in faith without hypocrisy, in well grounded hope and ferv- fervent love, offering the first fruits of his own created things. And the church alone offers this pure oblation to the Creator, offering to him with giving of thanks the things taken from his creation Now notice that he's invoked Philippians 4:18, that is the the sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God as well as Romans 12 1 that is the pure mind that is offered as a sacrifice all of this in uh, in the context of Malachi 1:11. so let's move on to Tertullian who died in 240 AD this is from his work against Marcion book 3 chapter 23 And in every place shall be offered unto my name and a pure offering, such as the ascription of glory and blessing and praise and hymns. And Tertullian again says in Book 4 of the same work, Chapter 1, And in every place a sacrifice is offered unto my name, even a pure offering, meaning simple prayer from a pure conscience. We'll move on to Minucius Felix from 250 A.D. from his work Octavius, Chapter 32. The victim fit for a sacrifice is a good disposition and a pure mind, consistent with Romans 12, 1, and a sincere judgment. These are our sacrifices. These are our rites of God's worship. But certainly the God whom we worship, we neither show nor see. That's a pretty powerful statement there who's talking about, this is Minucius Felix is talking about the sacrifices that we make are not visible sacrifices. And the God that we worship, we do not show or see. In other words, it rules out transubstantiation and Eucharistic adoration as well. We'll move on to Lactantius, who died in 325 AD. This is from his work, The Divine Institutes, Book 6, Chapter 25. Therefore, in each case, that which is incorporeal must be offered to God, for he accepts this. His offering is innocency of soul. His sacrifice is praise and a hymn. For if God is not seen, he ought therefore to be worshipped with things which are not seen. Like Tantius again in the Divine Institutes, Book 6, Chapter 2. This is true worship in which the mind of the worshiper presents itself as an undefiled offering to God. Again, invoking Romans twelve one 1 as the sacrifice of the new covenant. Now moving on to Aphrahat of Persia. This is from 345 AD, Demonstration 16, Paragraph 3. The prophet said concerning the peoples, that is Gentiles, that they would present offerings instead of the people, which is the Jews. My name is great among the peoples, and in every place they present pure offerings in my name. Now that's just to show that he was invoking Malachi 1.11, but he connects it to sacrifices of prayer and praise in another demonstration. This is demonstration four, paragraphs one and 19. Hear concerning the strength of pure prayer and see how our righteous fathers were renowned for their prayer before God and how prayer was for them a pure offering. Observe, my friend, that sacrifices and offerings have been rejected and that prayer has been chosen instead. What's interesting about all these citations is that that they're they're not saying there are more sacrifices for sin. They're just saying that the new sacrifice that we offer is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And gratitude they're simply saying that Malachi 1 11 is fulfilled in the offering of prayer praise and Thanksgiving and hymns and a transformed mind and caring for the poor these are the new offerings these are the only offerings we, we we offer to God it's very much different than what we're led to believe by the Dewey Catechism that insisted that all the early fathers and popes and councils of the primitive primitive ages insisted that the sacrifice of the mass was the sacrifice of the new covenant instead what we find when we analyze the early church fathers we find that they sounded a lot like protestants because i don't know of any protestants who don't offer the kind of sacrifice that just described the sacrifice of praise from the lips a sacrifice and incense that is well pleasing to god when we care for the the poor out of love for them and gratitude to him the sacrifice of the transformed mind is our spiritual act of worship according to romans 12 1 these are the sacrifices that we offer now. And I don't know Protestants who would disagree with that, but it's certainly not what we are led to believe by the Dewey Catechism.
0: Now let's talk about that a little bit. I want some. Uh, I want you to touch on this. Why, why is it even necessary or beneficial to go to the early church fathers and consider what they said? Um, because as you said, I mean, we we go to the scriptures and we we look at what the scriptures say, but I, I'm I'm just going to throw this out there. the 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 Roman Catholic Church sets forth that the idea that it is the church that Christ established here on earth. Uh, Jesus said, uh, "I've established my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it." So they they claim uh, I I don't know how to say it. They claim historical precedent in this regard to uh they 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 believe that they've that there's been a continuation of the church i mean they they claim that uh peter was the the first uh uh pope and so the reason that we're going to these to, to see what these early church fathers said is is simply because are they quoting them trying to establish their claim from the beginning
1: Yes. In fact, here, here's why. You throw down the sacrifice challenge. That is, and the sacrifice challenge is, is what's thrown down by Roman Catholics, especially in the Dewey Catechism. Is that, hey, ever since the beginning of the church in the primitive ages, everybody has always taught that the clean oblation that Malachi prophesied was the mass. And, I examined this to to double check what their claim is. They're saying all the holy popes and fathers and councils of the primitive ages taught this, and yet you start by examining what the early church taught, and you know what? There's no sacrifice of the mass there.
0: And, there. and if if you're not if you're not prepared to meet this 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 criticism, I think it is pretty difficult because what they're saying is that what Protestants believe has no historical precedence in the church. Is that right?
1: Yeah, the, yeah. In fact, they'd say your view of the Lord's Supper originated in the sixteenth century, whereas ours originated with the apostles. Right. Okay. And and what, what we can show, and it's actually this this is why I think that you know JND Kelly says, Hey, listen, from the earliest ages the Mass was considered the Eucharist was considered a sacrifice. It's important for us to explore that because J. and D. Kelly ends up being used as a Protestant scholar. He's saying the Catholics bring him and say, listen, look at what your own guys admit that the Eucharist in the earliest days was a sacrifice that we need to offer to God. And therefore, the sacrifice of the mass today is the the only true fulfillment of Malachi 111. The reason this is so important is because so many otherwise intelligent Protestants fall for the argument. The, the sacrifice challenge is simply a ruse to get Protestants to admit, okay, our version of the Lord's Supper is a novelty, and we need to repent and come back to the original practice of the post-apostolic era, because the church couldn't, could the, the gates of hell can't prevail against the church, right? Right. Therefore. The Catholics must be right, is that they've always offered the sacrifice of the Mass since the days of the apostles, and therefore we need to return to the Mass. Well, the, the Mass is an abomination. I would agree with the Westminster Confession on that. The Mass is an unholy, popish abomination, and it leads to gross idolatries where we're, we're taught that we must not only sacrifice the body and blood of Christ, but worship it. Because the bread becomes the body and the blood and the soul and divinity of, of Christ himself. And therefore, once the priest invokes the Holy Spirit to transubstantiate the bread and wine into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, that Christ is there and must, we must therefore bow down to the bread. Well, that's just idolatry. And yet so many intelligent Protestants have been led back into the idolatry of Roman Catholicism precisely because of this sacrifice challenge. They go, you know what? It turns out the Catholics were right. Malachi 1.11 prophesied the Mass, and I'm going to get back to the true religion Jesus founded. Well, you know what? I've got some news for them. The Mass that Roman Catholics practice today is a novelty of the late 4th century. It is not what was practiced in the early Church. (laughs) And that's why we want to spend time on this, because this argument has worked so well to lead people back into the error and idolatry of the Roman mass.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking about how much trouble I'm going to get in because you said that the uh, mass is an abomination. So I, I I, I totally agree with you. It is an abomination. And I sincerely hope that uh, my family that, that is Roman Catholic, I sincerely hope that they would, that they would consider these, these, um, uh, th- they would consider what you're saying, but let's let's go ahead and continue.
1: Okay, so so here's the, what I want to do next is that there's a lot more evidence from the early church we could use to show that they looked at the sacrifice that we offer in the household built out of living stones and the holy priesthood that has been formed by Christ Himself that is His people. uh, and that we offer spiritual sacrifices, when you read through what they're saying, it's very consistent with what was prescribed by Paul and Peter and the author of Hebrews and John and Revelation. It's very consistent with the type of sacrifices that Protestants are familiar with offering. There isn't a Protestant I know who wouldn't acknowledge that praise and thanks to God is a sacrifice of their lips, giving praise to him because that's exactly what's described in Hebrews. But if we go into this denying that there are any sacrifices, we lose the battle from the beginning because Roman Catholicism will show you that the early church continued offering sacrifices. The error is Roman Catholicism saying that what they were offering was the mass and that did not happen until the late 4th century. Okay, so let's enter into battle. And to do that, we want to take a look at three different examples that Roman Catholics typically use to prove that the early church really did teach the sacrifice of the mass as the fulfillment of Malachi 1.11. But before we do that, I want us to remember Philippians 4.18, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 10 to 12. And I want to bring up the Didache chapters 9 to 10 and uh, the Didache is uh, it's, the title is taken from a document called the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, and it originates in the first century, and it's considered an authentic document from the early church. And it speaks about the sacrifice. Actually, it speaks about the the bread and the cup of thanksgiving in a way that's quite interesting, and we'll get to that in just a second. But uh, Philippians 4:18, uh, but I have all and abound and Full, having received the things which were sent from you, an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable and well pleasing to God. And of course, we talked about Second Corinthians nine10 to twelve, which makes reference to the bread for the poor as bringing about uh, thanksgiving to the Lord. So uh, there we have uh, two examples of caring for the needs of others uh, being a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. Now, what's interesting about the Didache chapters 9 to 10, and this will be particularly interesting as we get to Justin Martyr, is that there's a description of the earliest, it's the earliest description of the Eucharist or the the Lord's Supper that we have available to us. And what's very interesting about it is it's all about giving thanks to God. But there's nothing there about words of consecration that would be necessary in order for this to really qualify as the sacrifice of the Mass. I'm going to go ahead and read it to you now, just so you get a feel for what's actually contained in this earliest description of the Lord's Supper. Now concerning the Thanksgiving, thus give thanks. First, concerning the cup. We thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. And concerning the broken bread, we thank you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you have made known to us through Jesus, Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever, even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one. So let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom for yours is the glory and the power through jesus christ forever now it continues in that vein in that chapter and in the next chapter and continues with uh, uh, just overflowing with thanks to god we thank you holy father for your holy name which you have caused to tabernacle in our hearts and for the knowledge and faith and immortality which you've made known to us through jesus your servant to you be the glory forever It just goes on and on like that, and it clearly involves thanksgiving to God. And it involves the use of a cup and broken bread. So clearly it's a representation of the Lord's Supper. And yet at no point in that is there any reference to take the food, say, this is my body, or invoke the Holy Spirit, to turn it into something that we can offer to God as a sacrifice, say, of transubstantiated bread. Now, the reason that's interesting is because we have a representation of the bread and cup of Thanksgiving that is described for us in one of the earliest representations of the Lord's Supper, and it leaves out the one thing that Roman Catholics consider to be central to this the, the apostolic faith that was once delivered to the saints, and that would be the actual words of invocation of the Holy Spirit and the consecration of the bread and wine in order to make it an authentic sacrifice of jesus body and blood now that's going to be important because justin martyr makes reference to the bread and cup of thanksgiving and yet we've just read an example of the bread and cup of thanksgiving that completely omits any reference to consecration or invocation of the holy spirit it simply says take the, the cup take the bread and it proceeds to describe how to thank the lord so let's jump in with justin martyr and This is the Roman Catholic evidence, and it comes from, uh, this is just one of the examples they use, and I just want to hit on this one for now, and the rest is available on the webpage. But this is from the Dialogue with Trifo, chapter 41. And Trifo was a Jew, and Justin Martyr was trying to persuade him of of the truth of Christianity. And so here here we go with chapter 41. Hence, God speaks by the mouth of Malachi, one of the twelve prophets, as I said before, about the sacrifices at that time presented by you. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord, and I will not accept your sacrifices at your hands. For from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, my name has been glorified among the Gentiles, and in every place incense is offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name is great among the Gentiles, says the Lord, but you profane it. So he then speaks of those Gentiles, namely us, who in every place offer sacrifices to him, i.e., the bread of the thanksgiving and also the cup of the thanksgiving, affirming both that we glorify his name and that you profane it." Again, that's Justin Martyr, Dialogue with Trifo, chapter 41. So here we have a reference to Malachi 1 verses 10 to 12, and he says that it is fulfilled in the bread of the thanksgiving and also the cup of the thanksgiving. But there's two things that I wanna point out. First, as we know from 2 Corinthians 9, 10 to 12, the bread of thanksgiving can refer to offering of thanks for the provision of the needs of the saints, totally outside the context of the Lord's Supper. And as we read in the and tent, the bread and cup of thanksgiving can refer to offering thanks and praise to God for all that he's done for us, completely apart from any consecration of bread that would make it a legitimate Roman Catholic mass sacrifice. And I want to point that out because Justin does make clear when he refers to the Lord's Supper that part of the purpose of the the Lord's Supper, or at least part of the liturgy, was to make sure that we were taking care of the needs of the poor. And we already referenced that in the first apology, chapter 13, where he's describing the Lord's Supper. And he talks about how, uh, you know, we, we quoted it earlier, whom we praise to the most of our power by the exercise of prayer and thanksgiving, and, and what he tells us that we thank God for is that not only that he's brought this into being for our sustenance, but also that we use it for ourselves and those who are in need, which is a reference to Philippians 4, 18. And he does this again in his first apology, chapter 66. And, and again, he's describing the Lord's Supper. He says, and the wealthy among us help the needy. And for all the things wherewith we are supplied, we bless the maker of all things through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Ghost. And And they who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit. Again, 1st Apology, Chapter 66. Here we have references to the Lord's Supper, and one of the central aspects of it is that we have all brought together the abundance that the Lord has supplied to us from our creation, and we give what we are willing to those who are in need. Again, these are references implicitly to Philippians 4.18. But I also want you to notice that when Justin continues discussing with Trifo in his his arguments with him, he goes back to this this matter of sacrifices and the thanksgiving of the bread and the cup, and he insists literally and explicitly that the only thing being offered is thanks and praise. So let's pick up where Justin Martyr actually clarifies this with, with Trifo And says that when I'm talking about the bread and cup of thanksgiving, all I'm talking about is the thanks and praise that we offer to him. Again, dialogue with Trifo, chapter 117. Accordingly, God anticipated all the sacrifices which we offered through this name and which Jesus the Christ enjoined us to offer, i.e., in the thanksgiving of the bread and the cup, and which are presented by Christians in all places throughout the world bears witness that they are well-pleasing to him. But he utterly rejects those presented by you and by those priests of yours, saying, And I will not accept your sacrifices at your hands. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is glorified among the Gentiles, but you profane it. Even now, in your love of contention, you assert that God does not accept the sacrifices of those who dwelt then in Jerusalem and were called Israelites. But says that he is pleased with the prayers of the individuals of that nation then dispersed and calls their prayers sacrifices. Now I'm, I'm going to pause here for a second because this is where, this is the critical line from Justin Martyr. He says, Now that prayers and thanks and giving of thanks when offered by worthy men are the only perfect and well-pleasing sacrifices to God, I also admit for such alone Christians have undertaken to offer. And in the remembrance of, Affected by their solid and liquid food, whereby the suffering of the Son of God, which the Son of God, which he endured, is brought to mind. So that it's, it's critical here he that when he's speaking about the bread and the cup of thanksgiving, he's talking about prayers and giving of thanks to God is the only well pleasing sacrifice. But when he talks about what that bread and wine represent to us in the context of the Lord's Supper, it's simply to bring to mind by the solid and liquid food the suffering that Jesus bore for our sakes. So it's also important to recognize that in Justin Martyr, the only purpose that consecrated bread ever serves is to remind us of what Jesus did for us. It's never as a sacrifice to God the way Roman Catholics understand it. So let's continue now with Irenaeus of Lyons. And uh, let's, uh, we're going to look at the Roman Catholic evidence, and uh, we'll just start. It's uh, Irenaeus. It's from his fragments. It's a collection of, of writings that are known to be from him. And they're, they're of, of different lengths, sometimes just a sentence or a paragraph. And they're all collected in a document called the Fragments of Irenaeus. And here's the Roman Catholic argument from fragment 37. Those who have become acquainted with the secondary constitutions of the Apostles are aware that the Lord instituted a new oblation in the New Covenant, according to the uh, declaration of Malachi the prophet. For from the rising of the sun, even to the setting, glorified among the Gentiles, and in every place incense is offered to my name in a pure sacrifice. For we make an oblation to God of the bread and the cup of blessing, giving him thanks, and that he has commanded the earth to bring forth these fruits for our nourishment, And then when we have perfected the oblation, we invoke the Holy Spirit that he may exhibit this sacrifice, both the bread, the body of Christ, and the cup, the blood of Christ, in order that the receivers of these antitypes, which literally means symbols, may obtain obtain remission of sins and life eternal. So there's the Roman Catholic argument. We have uh, Malachi 1.11 being invoked, the Holy Spirit being invoked, Uh, The word sacrifice being invoked, and the sacrifice is the the bread and body of Christ. Now, first, I want us to take a look at what Irenaeus is referring to when he talks about the incense and the prayers of the saints, which is a fulfillment of Malachi 1.11, because uh, he talks about the incense and the prayers of the saints in Revelation 8.3. He talks about Romans 12, 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, and Hebrews 13, 15, the sacrifice of praise. This also is from fragment 37. It says, those who have become acquainted with the secondary constitutions of the apostles are are aware that the Lord instituted a new obl- oblation in the new covenant. But but he goes on, and he describes exactly what he's talking about. And, and I'm going I'm I'm to add the part that I left out in the previous uh previous quote that Roman Catholics would use. And this is the part where it actually says what Irenaeus is talking about. He says, For from the rising of the sun, even to the setting, my name has been glorified among the Gentiles, and in every place incense is offered to my name in a pure sacrifice. As John also declares in the apocalypse, the incense is the prayers of the saints. Then again, Paul exhorts us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And again, let us offer the sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of the lips. Notice when he talks about the sacrifice that the Lord instituted, he talks about the prayers of the saints per Revelation 8.3. He talks about our bodies a living sacrifice in accordance to Romans 12.1. And he talks about the sacrifice of praise in accordance with Hebrews 13, 15. So when he's talking about a sacrifice and the oblation that the church offers, he has described it in terms of prayers and praise and thanksgiving to God. But next, I want you to notice that he has also invoked Philippians 4:18 when discussing the sacrifice of the new con- covenant in the context of Malachi 1.11. This is from Irenaeus against Heresies, book 4, chapter 18, Chapter uh, paragraph 4, and we quoted it earlier, but I want to get back to it because when, when we finish with this section, we'll notice that he has nearly exhausted all the New Testament references to the new sacrifice. He says, inasmuch as the church offers with single-mindedness, her gift is justly reckoned a pure sacrifice with God. As Paul also says to the Philippians, I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things that were sent from you, the odor of a sweet smell, that is incense, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This, again, is Irenaeus explaining what he means when he talks about the sacrifice of the new covenant. Now, the, the next thing we want to get to, though, is that Irenaeus, in fragment 37, describes a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving and prayer as the sacrifice of the new covenant. But he places the sacrifice of the new covenant prior to the invocation of the Holy Spirit. And then after the invocation of the Holy Spirit, he says that now we exhibit the sacrifice of Christ's body and blood to the believers which is pretty much what Protestants do today. When we get up, we thank God for all that he's done for us, and then we pray over the bread and the wine. And from that point forward, we all recognize that the purpose of the bread is to remind us of Christ and his flesh that was was slain for us. Just like Justin Martyr talked about when he was talking about what the elements are used for when they are consecrated. And then when we we, we pray over the, the the wine as well, and then from that point forward, everybody recognizes that you know, maybe grape juice and maybe wine, but whatever it is in its liquid form, it's to remind us of Christ's blood shed for us. Now this is extremely important because what what uh, Irenaeus does here is exactly the wrong thing to do, if he was a doctrinaire Roman Catholic. So let's go back and read a little bit more from Fragment 30, 37. He says, now after he's talked about uh, Romans 12.1 and after he's talked about Revelation 8.3 and the incense being the prayer of the saints and after he talked about Hebrews 13.15 and the fruit of our lips giving praise, he says, then when we have perfected the oblation, we invoke the Holy Spirit that he may exhibit this sacrifice, both the bread, the body of Christ and the cup, the blood of Christ. Now, that word where it says, and then when we have perfected, the actual word is in Greek is telesantes, which means completed, accomplished, or finished. And that is the way that word is typically used to say that when it's done, when it's over, when it's completed. And so what Irenaeus has shown us here is that when he's talking about the sacrifice of the new covenant, and he calls out Philippians 4:18 and Hebrews 12, uh, Hebrews 13:15, Romans 12:1, and Revelation 8:3, he says that's the sacrifice of the new covenant. And then, when we're finished offering it, it's only then that we invoke the Holy Spirit. At which point, we simply exhibit the sacrifice of Christ to the people that are there. What he doesn't do is say. After we invoke the Holy Spirit, we initiate the oblation of the New Covenant, which is what the Dewey Catechism strongly implied when it said all the holy uh, fathers and popes uh, uh, from the earliest councils from the primitive ages all said that the sacrifice of the Mass was the fulfillment of Malachi 1.11, the sacrifice of the New Covenant. And here we have Irenaeus, even though he, he says Jesus instituted the sacrifice of the New Covenant for us, he identifies what that sacrifice is. It's prayer, praise, thanksgiving. And then when he says, when we have finished offering that sacrifice of the new covenant, then we invoke the Holy Spirit that that the sacrifice of Christ may be exhibited symbolically. And he really does use the word symbolically when he describes it. So so what we've done so far is uh, gone through Justin Martyr, and we've shown that when Justin Martyr is interacting with Trifo he says explicitly that the sacrifice that is well-pleasing to God is prayer and Thanksgiving we get to Justin Martyr uh, so we get to Irenaeus and he says that the sacrifice in the New Covenant is prayer praise and thanksgiving and caring for each other and only when that sacrifice is over do we even evoke the Holy Spirit at which point the elements are displayed to men so that by the recollection that's stimulated by the solid and liquid food, that they'll remember what Christ did for them, which is exactly what a Justin Martyr described, and it's pretty much what was being described in the Didache as well, is that here we take the bread and the cup, and what, is it, what do we do? We offer thanks to God, and we thank Him for His Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. What we don't have in any of these cases is somebody taking consecrated bread and wine, turning it into Jesus' body and blood and offering it as a sacrifice of the new covenant for sins as a representation to God of the sacrifice that was offered to, Christ, to, to him on the cross. So you got um, a, a question?
0: Yeah, that's, that's essentially what we do today, right? I mean, that, that,
1: that, that, that's, yes, that's what I find so fascinating about their Roman Catholic use of Irenaeus here is that I don't know any Protestant churches that don't do this say, you know what, we are so thankful for all that you provided for us. And then they get out the bread and and, and the wine and they say, uh, this is to remind us of Christ's body given for us. This is to remind us of Christ's blood shed for us. And they're symbols, they're figures. And here, Irenaeus, instead of showing that they were celebrating the sacrifice of the mass, instead says that when we're finished offering the oblation of the new covenant, it's only then that we invoke the Holy spirit. And at that point, instead of offering a sacrifice to God, he exhibits the sacrifice that is exhibits the bread and the wine as the body and blood of Christ symbolically for the contemplation of the people in attendance. That's exactly what we do in the Protestant
0: churches. Right. And I think, I think what you're doing is extremely helpful because we're refuting the Roman Catholic claims that they have historical precedents in, in the, the uh, in the in the way that they do it. But then we're all and in, in doing that, we're we're showing that it's actually the Protestants who have the historical precedents for what we do, and that the basis for what the early church did and the basis for what we do today is uh, found in Scripture. So I think that's really really helpful. And you you had a let me see. You had one one more uh, major um, historical figure that the Roman Catholics use. Is that right?
1: Yes, that that would be Cyprian of Carthage, and, and I want to let's, present. Yeah, let's the...
0: let's go through that because uh, th- this is running a little bit long. But let's go through that because our our goal in this episode is not merely to uh, say, okay, here here it is, and just be done with it. We want to be thorough, and the reason that we want to be thorough is because we we know that there are probably Roman Catholics out there who – I'll give an example. Every time I talk to a Jehovah's Witness, I think I have a slam-dunk argument, and then they go away from me, and then they ask their elders, and they ask the, the the people at the Kingdom Hall, and then they they give them an answer to refute what I've said. And so what we're trying to do here is we're trying to – really just bury this and, and deal with it and deal with the claims that the Roman Catholics make in order to substantiate their position. So let's, uh, let's take a look at the third historical figure that you, that you referenced.
1: Okay. So the the third, so we covered Justin Martyr, we covered uh, Irenaeus of Lyons and, uh, and we're going to go now to Cyprian of Carthage and uh, Cyprian is from the third century. And, I want to... Th- this one is very interesting. I'll just go ahead and read it, and I'll, I'll tell you, if if you didn't understand Cyprian of Carthage, you would see this as support for the sacrifice of the Mass. But let's just read it. Let's just read what Cyprian of Carthage said. But I want to, I want to encourage your, your Christian listeners that this is not at all support for sacrifice of the Mass. But let's just read it. It says, And because we make mention of his passion in all sacrifices... For the Lord's passion is the sacrifice which we offer. We ought do nothing else than what he did. For scripture says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death till he come. As often, therefore, as we offer the cup in commemoration of the Lord and his passion, let us do what is known the Lord did. That's Cyprian of Carthage, Epistle 62, Paragraph 17. Okay, it sounds like he's saying that we offer the Lord's passion in our sacrifices, doesn't it? Well, let's examine this. And I want to start first by showing that Cyprian was raised as a pagan. And when he converted, he was immediately elevated to the office of a metropolitan bishop. And the metropolitan bishop is the bishop of a very large city in the Roman Empire. Now, that is a, a direct violation of 1 Timothy 3, six which says that you're not to appoint novices to these offices. And yet he was immediately elevated to the office of a metropolitan bishop. That's the first thing. He came out of paganism, converted to Christianity, and then found that he was so enthusiastic about the truth that he could not be brought to abide by it, which the truth was if you're really serious about converting to Christianity, then obey the instructions of the apostles, which is, don't get elevated to the office, office of bishop until you've had some time to study and learn. And he skipped all those steps. The reason that's important is not because we want to say, well, let's discredit the witness and so we can ignore his testimony. It explains something that Cyprian found very confusing, and his confusion manifests in his many writings. In his ignorance, Cyprian confused memorials, sacrifices, offerings, oblations, and commemorations as if they were the same thing. And we expand on this in much more detail on the webpage. Go to Their Praise Was Their Sacrifice at the whitehorseblog.com. Search for Their Praise Was Their Sacrifice. In that eight-week series, we spent an entire week on Cyprian just to deal with his confusion about the terms, memorials, sacrifices, offerings, commemorations, and how he used all those terms interchangeably. And it's clear from his use of them that he did not consider the sacrifices to be propitiatory sacrifices, but rather simply commemorations. Now, having said that, let's look at something else that Cyprian said in Epistle 62. And this is from paragraph seven of the same epistle. And remember, when he's insisting that we must do what the Lord did, he was addressing people who were using water in the Lord's Supper instead of wine. And the reason they were using water instead of wine is because with the odor of wine on their breath, people were being detected as being Christians for having celebrated the Lord's Supper. And then to avoid detection, they were using bread and water instead. And Cyprian was very upset about that. He considered it the equivalent of being ashamed of Christ. And he said, you must do what the Lord did and the Lord offered wine. Okay, so that's what he says. Now, here's what's so important about that. In that same letter, Cyprian acknowledged that Jesus could not have and in fact did not give his own blood to drink until after the cross. And this is going back to the argument about why it was so important to use wine in the Lord's Supper. He, this is quoting from Cyprian. The treading also and the pressure of the wine press is repeatedly dwelt on, because just as the drinking of wine cannot be attained to unless the bunch of grapes be first trodden and pressed, so neither could we drink the blood of Christ until, unless Christ had first been trampled upon and pressed, and had first drunk the cup of which he should also give others to drink. Now keep in mind that this letter was being written to people who were escaping martyrdom by using water in the Lord's Supper. And he said, Jesus died on the cross, and we are to drink of that same drink with him, that is, the cup of martyrdom. But when he does it, he says that, Jesus, we could not drink the blood of Christ unless Christ had first been trampled upon and pressed. And when was he trampled upon and pressed? He was trampled upon the next day. It wasn't at the Lord's Supper. It was the following day. And that tells us that Cyprian knew full well that Jesus' blood was not actually in the cup at the Last Supper. And therefore, Cyprian cannot be used to prove that the Lord had offered and instituted a sacrifice of his own body and blood the night before he died. In fact, what's so interesting is when we get to Malachi 1.11 and Cyprian, he mentions everything we've talked about so far except... The Lord's Supper.
0: I, I I have a question. If the Roman Catholics are using uh, Cyprian as an example, and the whole issue was that they smelled the wine on the lips of the Christians, I mean, obviously, if if the blood, if the wine became the blood, then that wouldn't even be possible.
1: Well, actually, we have to be careful with that because according to the Roman Catholic teaching the the appearance of wine remains, but the substance of wine is gone, and so they would say that it still appears on the outside to be wine, but substantially it is the blood of Christ.
0: Okay, I've never, I've always had difficulty understanding their position on that because I've always thought, does it become the so so it's just I, I guess in essence the blood.
1: Well, see, they would use the terms accidents and substance. So the accidents is what it appears to be. So the bread after consecration according to Roman Catholic teaching, the uh, the accidents of bread remains but the substance is gone and the substance is of fact Jesus body. And then with the wine, after the consecration, the accidents of wine remains but the substance of wine is gone and what it is substantially is is the blood of Christ. And the importance for us in this conversation with Cyprian is that Cyprian is saying explicitly he could not have given his blood to drink unless he had first been trampled out and pressed, and thus the significance of using wine in the Lord's Supper. And that means that he had not given his blood to his apostles to drink the night before he died, because that can't be given until he's trampled upon and pressed the next day and is in his flogging and at the cross. Right, and and th- that's so important. So, so I mean, but, but let's let's finish on on Cyprian because remember, the mass is supposed to be the fulfillment of Malachi one eleven, and and Cyprian in his confusion and said, you know, yes, Jesus' passion is what we offer, but study Cyprian and you'll find that he uses all those terms interchangeably, and he's confused on it. But he frequently means commemoration and remembrance when he says sacrifice, oblation, and offering. And, and, and it, in fact, it's clear from the quotation that after having said that his passion is a sacrifice we offer, he says, therefore, as, as we offer the cup in commemoration of the Lord and of his passion, It's he uses commemoration and sacrifice and interchangeably and offering interchangeably. And Roman Catholics will say, oh, yes, of course, it's a commemoration and a sacrifice. But when you read Cyprian, it's clear that when he speaks of sacrifices, he's speaking of a commemoration. When he speaks of offerings, he's speaking of commemorations and remembrance. But if he truly believed that Christ's passion is the sacrifice that we offer, then when you get to Malachi one eleven in Cyprian's thinking, he should be speaking, uh, he should be overflowing with praises of the mass sacrifices, the fulfillment of Malachi one eleven. So let's read Cyprian of Carthage. This is from Treatise 12, Testimonies Against the Jews, Book 1, Chapter 16. This is the only place that he ever addresses Malachi 1.11. In Isaiah, for what purpose to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I am full. I will not have the burnt sacrifices of rams and fat of lambs and blood of bulls and goats. For who has required these things from your hands? Quoting that's Isaiah 1, Verses 11 to 12. Also, in the 49th Psalm, I will not eat the flesh of bulls, nor drink the blood of goats. Offer to God the sacrifice of praise, and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. That's actually Psalms 50, verses 13 and 14. In the same Psalm, moreover, the sacrifice of praise shall glorify me. Therein is the way in which I will show him the salvation of God. In the fourth Psalm, too, sacrifice the sacrifice of righteousness and hope in the Lord. Likewise in Malachi I have no pleasure concerning you says the Lord and I will not have it will not have an accepted offering from your hands because from the rising of the sun even to the going down thereof this my name is glorified among the gentiles and in every place odors of incense are offered to my name and a pure sacrifice because my name is great among the nations says the Lord Well Tim what's missing in his explanation of Malachi 11 and its fulfillment What's missing? He says absolutely nothing about the Lord's Supper.
0: And, I'm sorry, I had, I had my microphone muted. And I was on, I'm, I'm trying to follow you on your notes. And so I'm, I'm going back and forth between screens. So oh, oh, that's, and, that's,
1: yeah, totally understandable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but yeah, okay. So go ahead.
1: So, so but let's just review, you know. Um, Justin Martyr talks about, Offering the Eucharist of the bread, and you read 2 Corinthians 9:10 to 12 about the bread of the Eucharist, referring to the provision for the saints. Read Philippians 4:18 in providing for the saints is an acceptable, well pleasing sacrifice read what he says in response to, to, to Trifo when he says, I admit that prayers and giving of thanks were offered by worthy men of the only perfect and well-pleasing sacrifices. Do you know the only place in the New Testament that talks about well-pleasing sacrifices is Romans 12, 1 and 2 and, and Philippians four eighteen. One has to do with the sacrifice of our lives and the transforming of our mind. The other has to do with providing for the needs of the saints. When push comes to shove, Justin Martyr says, you know what? The real sacrifices that we offer are hymns and gratitude for what God has brought forth for our use and also for for those who are in need. You go to Irenaeus, and he talks about the oblation of the new covenant being over before he ever invokes the Holy Spirit, which if he had been Roman Catholic, he should have waited until the Holy Spirit had been invoked before he said the sacrifice of the new covenant was over because Roman Catholics can't have a completed New Covenant sacrifice until the Holy Spirit is invoked. invoked. And Irenaeus says that he doesn't actually invoke the Holy Spirit until he has has completed the oblation. And that that word, by the way, for those that want to look it up, is telisantes, which means completed, perfected, fulfilled, accomplished, basically over and done with. The sacrifice of the New Covenant is complete before he ever invokes the Holy Spirit. Then you get to Cyprian of Carthage, And once you understand that he came out of paganism, was elevated to the bishopric way too soon, and in clear disobedience to 1 Timothy 3.6, we can see why he started talking about all these offerings and sacrifices and commemorations and oblations before he had a clear understanding of what the Lord's Supper truly was. And yet, when he finally gets down to describing the Lord's Supper, he says that Jesus could not possibly have had blood in the cup. Malachi 1:11. He describes everything in the world except the Lord's Supper. So those are the three big ones that Roman Catholics will use: is Just a Martyr Irenaeus of Lyons and uh, and Cyprian of Carthage. And yet, when you study them, you realize that they were not talking about the sacrifice of the Mass when they were talking about the fulfillment of Malachi 111. And and this just to, you know to 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 bring us to a break in this discussion so far. We're only about halfway through, but notice that upon examination, the sacrifice challenge falls apart because Roman Catholics want you to go to the early church, find their repeated use of sacrifices and oblations and offerings, and come to the conclusion that they must have been Roman Catholic, and therefore we need to repent and come back to the Roman Catholic Church. But the the sacrifice challenge is simply a ruse. It's a claim that this has been taught since the earliest days of uh, of the church and that therefore Roman Catholicism can trace the sacrifice of the Mass all the way back to the times of the apostles. Otherwise, why would the early church be talking about it? And yet we examine the early church and they're using sacrifice exactly the way that we would use it when we examine what the New Testament says about a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices to God. And they're the sacrifices of praise and thanks and gratitude and obedience out of gratitude, but they're not payments for sin, and therefore they are not references to the sacrifice of the mass.
0: Well, I think it's comforting for me to know that we Protestants are basically doing what the early church fathers did, and we're doing what is in light of scripture what's consistent with the Bible so I mean you said let's enter into battle and I think that you've you've pretty much killed it um, but I, I, I know that I'm looking at the notes and I, I see that there's a lot more to be said about this so I think, I think like you said right now is probably a good stopping point for this segment and what we can do is we can just pick this up again next time we'll have to do another episode with Uh, brother Kaufman and uh, also keep in mind that we are also going to be doing uh, some episodes about Mother Mary and and talking about the doctrines of of Mother Mary as perceived by the Roman Catholic Church we're going to be talking about that in the future so I'm just going to go ahead and close it it out for this episode I want to say thank you to brother Tim for coming on and um, I'm hoping we can get Brother Tim to come on on a more regular basis. I'm hoping that we can just make him a partner with Semper Reformanda Radio. So we'll we'll be talking to him about that in the future, but I want to say thank you to all of our listeners for hanging in there. I know that some of this stuff is uh, in-depth. It's pretty deep, but this is exactly what Roman Catholics need to hear. So be mindful of preaching the gospel to your Roman Catholic friends. Don't take anybody for granted. And uh, we'll catch you next week. Thank you and God bless.